Well, I'm excited to continue our series today on the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. The title of this message is called Gospel Impact. When you think about your life and you think about the very end of it, when it's all said and done and friends and family are gathered around at your memorial service and they're reflecting on your life and how you touch their life, what are some of the things that you want to be said or expect to be said that family or friends or coworkers might say about you as they're reflecting on your life? What kind of legacy do you want to live? What kind of impact do you want to have while you're here in this short period of time that you experience here on this earth in this life? What kind of impact do you want? See, if you're like me, I think you desire to make a difference. You desire to be a blessing. You desire to do as much good on this planet as you can and touch as many lives as you can with the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, God has wired humanity with this capacity, this desire and this capacity to make a significant impact for good on the planet. You see, from very beginning in Genesis, God uh, commissions mankind to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In, in other words, impact the world for good, govern and steward and be fruitful, multiply and make a difference in the world for good, for the glory of God and for the for the good of the creation and, and other people. And then in the New Testament, Jesus commissions his followers after he's resurrected from the dead. In Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the words that we use for our vision statement here, impact your world. Go make a difference in your world by making disciples, teaching them all that Jesus Christ has said and commanded. And there's something within us that longs for that. We desire that, don't we? We desire to have a positive impact on our family. On our friends, on our coworkers, on our classmates. We want to bless people. And that is a God-given desire that each of us have. And we must steward that. And we must align ourselves with God's will for our lives. And today we're going to look at a life, the Apostle Paul, who made a gospel impact. Significant impact for the gospel's sake. Jesus himself did that. He was able to say at the end of his life in John 17, he said, Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've glorified you here on earth. Jesus had completed his task while he lived here in this world among us. Paul, the apostle Paul, in his last letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, he said this, I fought the good fight of faith. I fought the good fight of faith. I finished the race and now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So at the end of Paul's life, Paul was able to have this sense of I've done the will of God. And in Acts 17, we get this snapshot of the apostle Paul giving himself to doing the will of God, namely in proclaiming the gospel and planning churches and impacting society through the gospel message. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Last week, Kevin shared on uh, Acts 16 and how Paul and Silas were preaching and the Philippian church got started. A jailer got saved in his family. The, the slave girl got delivered. Lydia, God opened Lydia's heart to receive the things of God spoken by Paul. And God was on the move there in the Macedonia area. And so we see Paul moves on and he says, verse, verse one, Luke says, now when they had passed through Phileas and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom on a, on, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city up in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason had received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. Let's look at the map here of kind of where where they're at and what's going on. So Paul, Silas were in Derby, Lystria and Derby, and they were given a call. They got a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, "Hey, come over here." They took it as a sign from God that God was leading them to go to Macedonia. Okay, so we see up there. Up in Macedonia, the region of Macedonia is Philippi. Okay, so last week we saw that a church got started in Philippi. There were some divine appointments. So it's unquestionable that God was leading them to Philippi. God powerfully moved and worked through the Apostle Paul's ministry in Philippi. Obviously, he had led them there. And then he's brought to Thessalonica. Okay, uh, that's a part of Macedonia too. So for some reason, the spirit didn't want them to spend much time in Asia or it also forbid them to go to Bithynia up there. You see in the corner for whatever reason, the spirit had an agenda that that he had for Paul and was leading him and Silas to effective gospel ministry, a gospel impact. And so they're there in Thessalonica and he does what he was custom as he goes to. Uh, the synagogue, and he reasons with the Jews. The gospel impacts lives as it is proclaimed and explained, yet many still reject its message. That's our big idea. The gospel impacts lives as it is proclaimed and explained, yet many still reject its message. So when Paul showed up in Thessalonica, he reasoned with the Jewish people from the scriptures. Now, Paul had this pattern of going to the Jews... And then going to the Gentiles. God had kind of set it up that way. Jesus came and he ministered in Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, He ministered to the Jewish people. And Jesus told his followers that you would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the, the, the world. The Jewish people had the scriptures. They had a background, a Bible background. They had a Bible to work with. They were familiar with it. And so Paul would start there. He would start uh, preaching the gospel to Jewish people who have have some biblical basis that he could work with. And he would reason with them from the scriptures. Luke likes to use this word reasoned in describing Paul's evangelistic ministry. He likes to use the word reasoned. Uh, he reasoned with Felix in, in uh, Acts chapter 24. Paul, Paul reasoned from the scriptures. And so effective evangelism involves reasoning with people, okay? Engaging in healthy dialogue, engaging them, talking to them, reasoning with them. God has created us as uh, intellectual beings, lo- beings with logic and understanding, Okay. And, and Paul appealed to people's logic and understanding. He reasoned with people and he used the scriptures there. He explained, he reasoned, he explained, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, this is similar to what Jesus did a few weeks ago. We looked at Luke 24 when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Jesus walked them through the scripture highlighting that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then rise from the dead, that he would that he would suffer. Uh, and, and, and all of the scripture 
points to Jesus. Uh, Dave Harvey says this, that the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. You see, the scriptures point us to Jesus so we can know Jesus and they affirm that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. That's what that's what Paul told these Jewish people, that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. This is the Christ or the, the Hebrew word Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for, guys. The one who would come and bring the rescue, bring the change, bring the redemption that we're looking for. And the Old Testament confirms this. He was the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He was the one whom God wouldn't leave in the grave, according to to Psalm 16, verse 10. And, And he was resurrected from the grave. And so Paul reasoned with people. He reasoned, he explained, and he proclaimed. And we must do the same if we're going to be effective evangelists, if we're going to make an impact. Now, most Christians I know struggle with this issue of evangelism and discipleship. Many Christians that I've talked to when I ask the question, uh, who are you discipling right now? Mo- many of them would say, I don't have anybody that I'm mentoring right now. So that, in other words, they're not actively engaged in the Great Commission and making disciples and leading somebody on a deeper journey with Jesus. Well, discipleship starts with evangelism, with sharing the gospel with people. This is the very beginning, the very beginning stages of, of a discipleship, sharing with somebody who Jesus is and what he's done and appealing to them, appealing to their minds and their hearts and their wills to believe the gospel and to respond. And so we're all called to do this. And in this chapter, we can get some helpful insights for evangelism and inspiration for evangelism. And so Paul was preaching and it says that there were some who responded. Verse four, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. It doesn't say all of them joined. Some of them did. He got, he got some response from these guys when he went there preaching. But he also had, he had some, another response from the Jewish people. The Jews were jealous and they took some wicked men and they, they formed a mob and an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. So they, they revolted, they resisted, they, they rejected what Paul had to say about the gospel. And when we step out and share the gospel with people, we're going to get various responses of receptivity or rejection and resistance. So don't be surprised if you meet that. With people, if if you meet resistance from sinners who love their sin and 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 want to be the own their own Lord and their own God and and rule their own lives, don't don't be surprised if you experience some kind of resistance because Paul experienced this, Jesus experienced this, and you and I are going to experience this as well if we give ourselves to the work of evangelism. The other option is just to not do any evangelism at all. Make no impact at all. I'm just going to slide on through to glory and, you know, I'm not concerned about rewards or faithfulness while I'm here. I'm just going to got my ticket punch. I'm going to heaven, right? There's many, many Christians who have that mindset. I just want to be comfortable and have a good life here and hope everybody else has a good life too, but God bless them. That shouldn't be our mindset as Christians. We should have a kingdom mindset where we want to make a difference. We want people to know Jesus and experience the joy of forgiveness, the freedom that Christ brings, the hope of life eternal. We want people to know that. And Paul gave himself to bring in that gospel message. Notice this statement in verse 6 that said about Paul and his companions, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, this was said in a negative way, but they were speaking better than they realized. This was this wasn't a compliment. In other words, they were saying these guys are causing trouble in the world. 
These guys are upsetting people. These guys are turning the world upside down. But the, the reality is, is the world is already broken and upside down. It needs to be set straight and mended and, and changed for the better. And the gospel does that. Christians, Christ, through his people as the salt of the earth and the light of the world have has made a, a huge impact throughout history. Think about the the calendar. You got BC before Christ, AD after death, okay? Jesus has had his imprint upon human history. Care for the poor. Because of Christian influence and Christian thought, the value of human life, children, disabled children, women that that have often uh, throughout history been treated as lower than, and, and children and disabled treated as lower than and disregarded if you didn't have functionality, if you didn't have, if you're not contributing uh, enough to society, then you're just, you're down here, right? So, so the influence of Christianity has, has led to people loving others who have been made in the image of God. Education has been impacted. Think about all the Christian schools and universities that have been started by, by Christians because Christians value the truth, the wisdom and understanding. And in Jesus are, are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. You think about so many areas of life, art, music. Jesus has made an impact in the world because he resurrected from the dead on the third day. And his followers saw him and they believed that message and they gave their lives to get that message out. And so there's been a significant impact. But know that when we go to bring the gospel to people, there's going to be various responses, some of receptivity, some of resistance. William Barclay says this, those they say who are upsetting the civilized world have arrived here. This is one of the greatest compliments which has ever been paid to Christianity. When Christianity really goes into action, it must cause a revolution both in the life of the individual and in the life of society. It changes the way we view the world, ourselves, and those around us. Jesus, in talking about the various responses to the word of God, he, in Luke chapter 8, told this parable. The parable of the sower and the soils, right? And he says, the sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed some that fell along the path and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and it choked it. And some fell into good soil and it grew and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So there's four different types of people here and responses to hearing the word. One is the one on the path is those in which the devil snatches the seed away. The seed is the word of God. The sower is the proclaimer of the word of God. Okay. We're to just be like a, a farmer, a sower that just goes and, and sows seed. That's what Paul was doing. He was sowing the seed of the gospel and it would sometimes fall on good ground. Sometimes fall on bad ground. Rocky soil. They joyfully receive the word, but they have no root in them them, and they fall away when trials come into their lives. Those where the seed fell among the thorns are those who let the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life choke the word out of it. And then the good soil are those who receive the word with an honest heart, a good and honest heart, and they bear fruit. Now in Thessalonica, they were, they were both. Paul wrote the Thessalonians saying this in 1 Thessalonians 1 later on. So a church got established there through his ministry there. And he writes them and he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, our Father, God, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, and you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Now notice here, here's the gospel impact upon their lives. Paul's describing 
the gospel impact upon their lives. The ones who receive the word. Uh, he's describing the fruit that was that was that was brought forth through the proclamation of the gospel. Verse six says, "And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only as the word of the Lord, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you." In Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not to say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This was gospel impact on lives, upon a church, upon a group of people in Thessalonica. This is the kind of gospel impact and effects that God wants his gospel to have in your life, saints. He wants you also to be an example to other believers around you. And from you, the word of the Lord sound forth and go out so that people see your faith, hear of your faith and see your love. He wants that kind of impact in your lives. And, and he wants us to turn from our idols, to serve the living God and to eagerly wait for Christ to return. Amen. This is gospel impact. And when we're calling people to respond to the gospel, this is one of the things that we should do. This is what Paul does. We'll see in, later on in this chapter. He were to call people to respond to the gospel by repentance, changing your mind about the world, about God and about sin, changing your mind and then changing your re- direction. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so they turn from their idols to serve the living God. Their faith was displayed through their action. Their genuine, authentic faith was displayed through their action, through through their love. Their love and faith were displayed through action. So then we go on to Paul gets hindered from staying there longer. And he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we were hindered. Uh, Satan hindered us from coming to you. Sometimes the enemy can hinder gospel work. There's, there's a, there is spiritual warfare. Know that if you're going to give yourself to missions and evangelism, you're stepping onto the battlefield. If you don't want to be on the battlefield and make no impact, and you, the devil will let you live a comfortable life and make no impact, right? But once you get out there on the front lines and you start preaching the gospel and telling people about the way, the truth, and the life and and pointing people to Jesus, there's going to be resistance from the enemy, Satan, and his demons, and there's going to be resistance from the world. There's going to be pushback when we start making a difference. And so they have to move on. And this is something that Jesus says to do, like when... When he sent his disciples out, he says, you know, when they don't receive you at a certain place as you're going to share the word, what does he tell them to do? Shake the dust off your feet and just move on. Go to somewhere where there's receptivity, where people are open to hear because there's lots of people out there. Don't cast your pearls before swine, Jesus says. So there's a time to discern that when you're talking to somebody, if if they're receptive and ready or whether you should move on and, and share the gospel with somebody who's more open and ready. And these guys in Berea were much more ready for the gospel, even more than those in Thessalonica. Luke writes, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they needed to get out of there lest they get beat down and thrown in jail again. And they went and they arrived into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This, this, when he says 
not a few. He's saying that was a, it was a good amount. It was, it, he's saying it in the negative to communicate the positive. Um, there, there were several Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word was being proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there also agitating and stirring up the crowd. So here comes the enemy. Again, it's like they just, the enemy just won't leave them alone. You know, they're just, we're going to try to hinder and hold down and suppress the gospel advancement. But Paul didn't let it stop him. He kept on proclaiming the gospel. The churches continued to get, get planted. Notice the, the Bereans though. I think, I think we can learn from them the receptivity to the word. First, they receive the word of God with eagerness. Saints, do you have that disposition to the word of God? Or is it just kind of like, mm, I'll snack a little bit on that, try a little bit of that? Or are you eager to take it in and the feast on the word of God? You want to know it. You want to understand it. You want to see it in the Bible for yourself. You want to see it with your own eyes, not just because Pastor Keith or Mike or Kevin said it's, it's true. You want to see what God's word has to say about what we're saying. This is important. We encourage our people here to do that, to be those, to be students of the word or Bereans, if you will. Okay, noble Bereans who search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Search the scriptures, study the scriptures and find it in scripture. Is this what the scripture teaches? We, we've been given a Bible to help us filter through ideas and worldview and, and philosophies and all, everything that's thrown at us that we're bombarded with and taught in this world. We have a Bible to be a lamp into our feet. God's word to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And it will help us see where we're at and where we're going if we'll use it to examine. And so they, they received the word of God with eagerness. They searched the scriptures. They, 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 they were making, trying to make sure whether what Paul was saying was accurate and true and, and worth believing in. Let's be noble Bereans, people of the word who study it and believe it and then act upon it. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So now Paul has to move on and without his traveling companions. Okay, he's all alone. Those, uh, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. Athens. Okay, I'm excited about this part. Mars, Mars Hill, where Paul gives his speech here. Verse 16, now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. He was provoked. He was stirred within. He was troubled. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Again, Luke's using that expression. He reasoned, okay, and he went to the synagogue. He went to the Jewish people first. He looked for the synagogue, the people who had the scriptures, who had a a basis with which he could reason with them, a biblical basis with which he can reason with them. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. This was a, uh, an influential city. Uh, there was a lot of intellectuals there. There were philosophers there. It was, it was saturated with idolatry. Athens was saturated with idolatry. It's been said that it was easier to find uh, an idol than it was to find a man in Athens. Okay, it was so saturated with idols, with false gods, right? And, And Paul's provoked within him. What he saw provoked him. Okay, I've experienced a little bit of this when when I went to India. I went to India twice. And I was there in Calcutta and Bangalore. I, I just saw these cities physically polluted, but polluted spiritually with rampant idolatry. And Jesus was just another one of those 
little gods that they would add into the rest of their gods. You know, I remember having conversations with taxi taxi drivers in the little rickshaw and they had, you know, they had their various Hindu gods, uh, little um, little grave images. And then they had a, a cross or a Jesus statue on there talking to them about Jesus. They're ask, asking them if they believe in Jesus. They're like, yeah, yeah, believe in Jesus. Right. And and so the, the mindset was just add add him in to many of the other gods. And so and 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 trying to explain the gospel to them, you have to highlight the exclusivity of Christ. That he is the only way. He's not one among many. He's not one among many ways to salvation to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So you don't just throw them in and make sure you got all your God's bases covered. Okay, you need to know the one true God. And so there was, there was some similarity there with this city. They were, they were saturated with idolatry. They were, they were philosophers. They were intellectuals. They, they liked to spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Novelty. They just wanted to tell and hear something new and have these lofty conversations. So they were philosophical, they were idolatrous, and they were given to novelty. And, and just they wanted to tell and hear something new. And so Paul steps in and he, he starts with the Jewish people, but then he, he, he starts engaging uh, the people of Athens, Gentiles. So there's two philosophies here, two groups mentioned that have two different philosophies. The Epicureans called philosophers of the garden. This is John Stott. They followed the philosophy of Epicurus, Curious, uh, who died in uh, 270 BC. He considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in, have no influence on human affairs. The world was due to chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival of death and no judgment. So human beings should pursue pleasure, especially enjoyment of this life detached from pain and passion and fear. That's Stott summing up the, the philosophy of the Epicureans. And then the Stoics, they were philosophers considered the, called the philosophers of the porch, followed the philosophy of Zeno, died in uh, 265 BC. Um, they acknowledged the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, confusing him with the world's soul. The world was determined by fate, and human beings must pursue their duty, resigning themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be, and develop their own sufficiency. So for the Epicureans, their motto or their focus was enjoy life. Just enjoy life. Live it up. Enjoy life. And the Stoics were about enduring life. Okay? You just endure Epicureans emphasize chance, escape, enjoyment of life. The Stoics emphasize fatalism, submission, endurance, and pain. And so this gives some some insight into uh, what Paul said in his speech to the Athens, because he he had some familiarity with who he was talking to, which is important for us if we're going to be effective in evangelism. We need to know where people are at and where they're coming from and how to address them in a winsome way. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areagapius, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They, they want to interview him. Do we need to throw in this Jesus God to make sure all the bases are covered? Let's hear about this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragapius, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, you are very religious. Now, I appreciate how he addresses them because this this could either mean you guys you guys are spiritual and devout, or you guys are superstitious. So one negative or one positive. You guys are very religious. He doesn't start off addressing them like saying, You idol worshipers. 
All right. He doesn't like shut their ears off by by just blasting them. Okay. He he saves the punch for the end. He saves the punch for the end. He starts off with with what appears to be an affirmation, a double entendre. Yeah, he wasn't affirming their idolatry in in any way. He was actually calls them to repentance. So he stands up. And he says, I, and I perceive in every way that you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the, this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He, he, he uses Something they're familiar with as a springboard, the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you guys don't know. Okay, they, they wanted to make sure the bases were covered when it comes to all the gods. So they had one altar to the unknown God just in case, you know, that there was one out there that they didn't know. They wanted to make sure the bases were covered and they don't want to anger any of the gods, right? And so they were very idolatrous. And Paul uses that as a base, you know, springboard. He start, he comes at him, uh, saying, let me tell you about him. He's the one who made everything. Uh, Warren Wearsby, theologian, pastor, who actually died this week at 89 years old. He has a, a great commentary series through the entire Bible that I found very helpful. He outlines the Bible very well. He outlines this little speech in four little sections here. And the first one, uh, he describes it as Paul uh, emphasizing the greatness of God. He is the creator. Now take note of what Paul's doing here. He's doing something different than what he did with the Jews. With the Jews, he just busted out with the Bible. Because they believed the Bible. They, they believed in the authority of the Old Testament scripture. And so Paul used that. Now, with these guys, he had a different approach. He had to meet these guys where they were, and he had to start at ground zero with a biblical worldview. There's a creator God. Okay, And I found this is very much necessary today in talking with uh, millennials, college students, intellectuals today. We need to start with creation and creator and why are we here and how did we get here? And where are we going, right? Those are some big, deep questions that people have. And I love to ask those questions. Just last night at Chick-fil-A, I asked a young young man, what's your purpose, man? Like, what, why do you think you're here? I see young people and just kind of going with the flow, living it up, following the youthful lust. Uh, why, why are you here? Have you wrestled with that question? And, the, and Christianity offers a satisfying answer to some of those deepest questions that we have as human beings. Philosophy and science does its best to try to answer those questions and give us satisfying answers. But the Bible and the God of the Bible, I think, gives the most satisfying answer. And Paul thinks so. He believes that. So he points the Athens to the greatness of God, this creator God who made everything. He's distinct from his creation. He's the creator of everything. And he's the one who made it all, being the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's not confined to temples made by man. You see, it's our human nature to want to put God in a box and try to try to make him tame and fit into our little understanding or that, that we've created, our little temple, either mentally or physically, that we've created. And yet he transcends time and space and he's infinite in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so there are aspects to who he is that just go beyond our understanding that we just can't wrap our minds around because we haven't been here for eternity. And we haven't seen and, and we don't know what he knows. And we haven't, we can't be everywhere and transcend uh, space and time like he does. But we can know him. We can know him. We have the capacity to know God, to have a relationship with this unknown God. 
So he starts with, with creation, and this is helpful. Paul also does this in the book of Romans. He points to creation as a reason why all men and women are without excuse and accountable before God. Because there is a creator who made everything, and you see creation, which bears witness to the invisible attributes of God. And then he goes on in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. God doesn't have a help needed sign that he has on the window trying to get people to come help him and serve him because he doesn't have enough staff to cover all the workload that he's trying to manage with the whole world and the growing population and all the universe. He, He doesn't need our help. He doesn't, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I was started singing yesterday as I was thinking about this, that, that old song, you are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give. By your plan, that's just the way it is. You are God alone from before time began. You are on your throne. You are God alone. And right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne. You are God alone. It's a, it's an appropriate song for this text. So Paul points to the, the one true God and he points to his greatness and he points to his goodness, according to Warren Wearsby. He's good in that he provides for us. He doesn't need anything from us. We need him and he gives life and provision and food to all mankind. These are graces, common grace that he gives all humanity, which should lead us, our hearts back to him in gratitude, thanks and praise and worship and service because he's been good to us. We have breath and life in him. Paul goes on in him. We live and move and have our being quoting a a poet. And so, so Paul points to the greatness of God. He points to the goodness of God. He, he points to the government of God, the rule of God, according to Wearsby, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and we have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Powerful words here. This is a powerful speech that Paul's giving in, in Athens, he quotes from their own people that they know, their own poets, philosophers. He uses their own understanding, something that they're familiar with to point them to the one true God. This is a, a, a helpful lesson and insight for us as we're trying to, to reach people is use some of the things that they're familiar with. Find that common ground. Find the bridge to, to connect the truth of the gospel with people. He describes all of humanity as God's offspring, as God's children. Now I want to want to say this that in one sense we are all God's children in that we're a part of his creation, okay? Now I've heard people I've heard people without understanding say, "Well, we're all God's children." And and I think they 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 mean like even spiritually at times. But but the Bible says in the New Testament that to be a child of God, spiritually, you have to be born again. You have to receive Christ. So in one sense, being a part of creation, we're all God's children in, the, in that sense. Okay, So the fatherhood of God 
there's we 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 came from him. He created us and he made us. Yet we need to be born again to be his children for all eternity and have eternal salvation. We have to be born again through Jesus Christ and his finished work, us believing in him and what he's done to be children of God. First John tells us there's children of God and there's children of the devil. Jesus told in John chapter 8 some Jewish guys who were trying to kill him. He said, your father's the devil. And that doesn't sound very loving, does it? But, but he spoke the truth. The most loving, gracious person who ever walked the earth spoke the truth. He spoke reality uh, because they were full of hatred instead of love. And John says that's the mark of the child of God. Those who are born again and are truly God's children, they have love for one another and they practice righteousness. I, I think it's important what Paul's doing here, and we can do the same. We can take this principle here. We can affirm people who are not Christians, affirm the their God-given image that they reflect. They have been made in the image of God. They have the capacity to feel, the capacity to love, the capacity to to know between right and wrong, to do good or to do evil, to choose. They've been created in the image of God and they reflect God's image. And we can affirm those good things that we see in non-Christians. We can affirm those things. And like Paul, we can say, I can see you're very devoted to your religion without affirming the religion that they're devoted to that may be false and destructive and hurtful, right? And so we can affirm people who are made in the image of God without affirming their sin and saying it's okay that you're living in sexual immorality, homosexuality, idolatry, drunkenness. We don't want to affirm those things. We want to call people to repentance, um, and then lastly, we see we, Paul gives them the punch there. Warren Wearsby describes this as the grace of God. When we talk about Jesus and what he's done for us, going to the cross for us, rising from the dead for us, that is grace, amazing grace indeed. But also in this section, I would add the judgment of God that Paul talks about. Verse 30, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent God commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a prescriptive verse, by the way, in the book of Acts. That's prescriptive. All people everywhere. That's you and me here today. Repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and some of the men joined him. Some of the men joined him and believed. And among them, Dionysus and Ariagapite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Some difficult names there. And so the response wasn't overwhelming. We don't see this, this huge overwhelming response, but there were some who responded were that were were touched by his message. So let me let me wrap it up here in application. Let your hearts be stirred to take action and speak up and engage the culture. So when Paul was in Athens and he saw the idolatry of the city, he was he was provoked. Now some some Christians when they get provoked by the idolatry and the immorality of the world, they just go on this this rampant, you know, complaining, those sinners, heathen, going to hell. But they don't do anything to try to reach them and engage them and, and share the gospel with them and be a, a solution to the problem that they see. And we don't want to be like that. Those who merely just say the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We want to be those who are making an impact by bringing the gospel to lost people who are blinded, who, who need to have their eyes open. Discern where people are at and seek to meet them where they're at spiritually, intellectually, and even physically. Go to where they're at. 
Uh, for many of us, this starts with us just simply walking across the room, walking across the restaurant, walking across the workplace, your school, the gas station, and just greeting somebody and talking to them and then maybe asking them some questions. Hey, do you have a religious background at all? Or is there anything I can pray for you about? And just engaging people to find out where they're at, asking them strategic questions that reveal their spiritual condition and their needs. By the way, I mean, if you want to do this today, Pastor Mike and Terry are leading a team at 2.30. Over the next month or couple of months, we're going to be going, we're committed to getting the message of the gospel out to every household in the 75041 area. If, if, if you haven't built up the courage to actually start that conversation with somebody and engage in a conversation, you can just be the, the UPS person and put that bag on the door and keep walking. Put the bag on the next door, keep walking, and pray, Lord, please let them read that gospel track and watch that DVD and let them get saved through that. God just might use those seeds of the gospel that you sow or your children sow by putting a bag with the gospel message on it on, on doors. But I want to challenge you, those of you who do go, is when you see somebody out and they're walking around or their door's open and you're putting it on the door, don't just walk by and, and pass on. If they see you putting something on their door, all right, like you're knocking and running or something, like engage in a conversation with those people. Maybe even plan to knock on every every 10 doors, you're going to knock on one. Let the Spirit lead you as you see a house that has some things that that make you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, right? Uh, And so engage, engage people, discern where they're at, ask them questions. People are, are hungry to have some of those deep questions answered about why am I here? You know, why, why am I here? God has put eternity in the hearts of mankind. He's wired us to know that there's something more than this in life. And we're not going to be satisfied with anything else but God and God alone. Present the gospel and the necessity to respond in faith and repentance. Evangelism is presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling, speaking the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then calling people to respond by turning away from their sins and putting their faith in Jesus. That's what evangelism is, and we want to do that. Evangelism is not just inviting somebody to your church, not just giving a gospel track. It's presenting the gospel and then calling people to repent. Father, thank you for the the group of uh, the family that we have here at City Church and the heart that we have to to make an impact and to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that you would help us to be effective gospel witnesses and help us to push back all against all the barriers and all the things that would hinder us, that would keep us down from stepping out in this and just going full throttle in, in seeking to save that which is lost. Uh, because you care about people way more than we do. And just give us more of your heart so that we would be moved and stirred and compelled with your love to take some action. And may we establish rhythms within our schedule to where we are just making ourselves available to share the gospel with others. We pray that we would see fruit from the saturate endeavor. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.